Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. I'm Greg McEwen, and I'm your host for the What's Essential podcast. I'm also the author of Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less, and my goal is to decode exactly how to design a life that really matters, because if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. If you're new to the show, take a deep breath. Almost everything is trivial. Only a few things are essential, and that's what this show is all about. My job is to interview, get deep really with authors, entrepreneurs, psychologists, and everyday people to help explore what's essential. Through a process of listening, unpacking, and going deep with each guest, we turn each episode into practical advice for intentionally planning and living in order to move forward. If you don't do anything else, just ask what's essential and eliminate as much as possible everything else. Let's start from the beginning. My name is Elena Aguilar, and I am a writer. I'm a coach. I am an educator. I founded my own small business. I work on topics that include team development, emotional resilience, racial justice, communication, Uh, But more than anything, I'm a writer. And what do you write? So I have written six books about the topics that I just listed. And those are specifically for educators. I live in Oakland, California, and I worked in the public schools here for 20 years. I have written for teachers, school leaders, school coaches for about a decade now. You emailed me. What did you say? How did we get here? I just have to first thank you for your work. Because when I first, I heard you first on a podcast, and I remember literally stopping in my tracks. I was doing something like cleaning the house. And I just remember stopping and feeling like I was having one of those epiphany moments. So I started my own business about six years ago, in part because I wanted to keep writing and I I sort of needed to have a structure around me to, I don't get paid much at all for the books that I write, not in the field I'm in. And so I needed some way to have the other revenue streams But that business took and has taken on an enormous life of its own. And I find myself over and over saying, sometimes in the form of sort of a temper tantrum at the end of the week or on a weekend, like, I just want to write. I want to be a writer. I'm a writer. I want to write. And so, I mean, this is my primary dilemma that I go around and around and I read so much and I listen to so much and I want to write books, but there's so much that feels like you have to do to get your book out there. You have to do keynotes and workshops and Q&A, and you have to write other articles and blogs so that you can get the word out so people learn about you, and you have to do social (laughs) media and podcasting and newsletters. And it feels like I have to do all of that to create and maintain and expand my platform, and all of that eats away at my writing time. (laughs) You're describing a true calling, a true passion around the writing itself. That's what you want to be doing. That's what is 
important to you. That's where you feel your clearest contribution. But there is this mighty other, uh, a whole cloud of activities that are supposed to support that effort, but it's a bit like the tail wagging the dog. Mm-hmm. That the other becomes the work mm-hmm. and the writing is actually taking a smaller percentage of your time and attention. I'm really clear on my my sense of my own mission or purpose in life. I'm really clear on what I do best. I'm clear on it feels like what is essential to me. And I just keep going around and around. And then, of course, having a pandemic hasn't helped because that completely – well, it shattered my business and then I quickly restructured it and it's okay, but it I used to do everything in person. And and so just when I felt like I was sort of getting a hold of this monster and I could actually get into the writing, then we had the pandemic. You know, and now it's been 5 or 6 years and I didn't list also that when you do all of these other things and you have a business, then you also have to run a business and there's all there's so much to do. And what do I do? <laughs> yeah, the way you ask that question, it's not like surface. You're not kidding around. Mm. There's some emotion behind that. There's some pain behind that. Mm-hmm. So I turned 50 a year ago. And I feel like I have a dozen more books in me. And I have books that are in different genres. And I want to write for a broader audience. I've learned so much in my life, and especially in the work that I've done in the last 25 years in education that is relevant outside of education. And there's been interest. And so I feel like I am reaching an age where I recognize that I can't take for granted my, I mean, you can't at any time, but it sort of feels like 50 feels really big. It's a big number. And, and how do I get the time to write these books? You know, and there's another part that I have to mention, which is just the realistic part of earning a living. And I have a, I have a son, I have a partner, a husband who's an artist, and he's following his passion and doing incredible work. But we don't have big income streams. You know, I have to figure out the income piece. And and so it does, it feels more intense than it feels more charged because I I don't want to be trying to create brilliant Instagram stories as much as I have been. <laughs> yeah, you you're describing a challenge where the money pressure comes like a tiger. Meaning it lurks all the time. Mm -hmm. It creates this burden fear, really. Even when things before the pandemic were starting to work in the business or even were working well, you still have this frustration 
you are keeping me from writing. How am I supposed to write when there's a tiger lurking over there? <laughs> yes, that is definitely true. I love that analogy. And I also want to acknowledge that, or I just want to bring into it that I knew that when I wrote my first book, I needed to do a lot of the marketing. I needed to be getting out. And I did that because I wanted the book to have a life and I wanted people to read it. And since then, I've known that I have a very deep commitment. I mean, my primary commitment is to impact and to to doing what I can do to get my work out because I know that it it, it helps. It's in service of a greater good. And and so a lot of what I've done, I've done because I wanted the work to get out. I think it's more recently this year, 2020, turning 50, thinking about my son's college that I've been thinking, you know, I've been working at this business and this writing for seven years now and sort of, okay, I need to actually have a bigger savings account. This is real now. I got to figure this out. Mm. There's urgency to it. Yeah. What you're really, I think, telling me is this writing hasn't got to the place I want it to get to. I've I've made progress. I have put my ideas out there. That's helping. I'm building this platform, but I feel somewhat stuck in the journey. I want it to reach a, a new tipping point, a new audience, so that I can provide better, so that I can fund college for my son, so that all of it adds up to urgency. And in that urgency, frustration too. Mm-hmm. And I think in your voice there, weariness. I've been doing this for years now. Yeah. And it, you know, it feels like there are so many decisions that only I can make as the CEO of my company, as the person writing the books. And, and there's weariness. I have had a lot of impact, and I'm so grateful that I've been able to reach the people I've had. I have folks around the world who read my books and send me emails, and, and that's incredibly rewarding. And and then I think, and it's been exhausting. And I thought I had all kinds of plans for 2020, which were about scaling back and working, you know, four days a week, and and so on. And then and then 2020 happened, and. And now, for example, here's a a present current day dilemma. I was asked to do a keynote in the end of January that's on a Saturday morning, and it would start at 6 a.m. Pacific time because it's on the East Coast. So I would need to be up at 4.35 and delivering this keynote at 6 a.m. on a Saturday and part of me wanted to just say, no, I take the weekend off. And then the other part said, I can't say no to that kind of money. I can't say no. Or when do I say no? And I'm the person, even though I have a team of people, and but ultimately it's my decision. It's a great example of the awfulness of trade-offs. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've written a decent amount about trade-offs, but it doesn't make them more enjoyable for me. It doesn't make me suddenly always rejoice in them. There's 
an inherent pain. You want to be able to take Saturday off and have this keynote and get paid for it. Mm-hmm. And right now, the trouble is everything's taking a bit more of you than there is to go around. Yeah. Let's try and get concrete about what success looks like for you. How would you know you'd arrived? I think, okay, I would know if I could easily say, I don't want to do that keynote. I don't need to. I can say no, or I can say, if you guys really want me to do it, you've got to figure out a way to do it on a weekday. I wouldn't feel like I couldn't turn down that because of the money at this point. What you just said to me was that you'd be in a financial position to pick and choose what work to do and when. And I think what you may really be saying is that my writing business is successful enough that I can write for a living rather than coach for a living, or at least that they're both in play so that, again, you have the option. Right now, it's just whatever the money is, that's what I need to be doing. However tired I am, whatever's going on, that is the default priority. You wish it wasn't. Yeah, that I would have the choice. I mean, I think the unpredictability of the really the economic situation that we're in is what also makes me think, well, you know, if I say no to this, maybe that's fine because there'll be enough offers. There's enough work in the following months. But at this point, I still feel like who knows what's going to happen in this economy. Let me ask you this question. What really is the dream? Just describe like perfection for me. Ah, um, I would have months when I didn't have to show up in the public world and I could completely immerse myself in a writing project. Mm-hmm. And I don't mind. I usually have written very intensely as well as working at the same time, but then the book comes out and then I don't work on a writing project for about six months and I just help the book go out into the world and I I get away from the screen and I enjoy that. And then I go back to writing. I think, um, but I think I would have, but during the time I've written my last books, almost all of those books I wrote while simultaneously having to present and go out and deliver workshops and keynotes on the same day. So I, I like to write early in the morning. I get up, I would write for three or four hours, you know, finish writing at seven or eight in the morning. And then I would go out and work a full day and I'd write on the weekends and I'd write. And so I wouldn't have to do two jobs at the same time. I would just get to write and I'd be immersed in it. And I wouldn't have to, I wouldn't have to do Instagram stories and I wouldn't have to write newsletters or I would just get to, I love writing. It's my favorite thing. I, it's, I, it's rarely painful. I love it. And, and I would just be able to be completely immersed in it. That would be, that would be the dream. And I would earn enough of a living to not have to worry about the fact that I was doing that. 
This episode is sponsored by LinkedIn. I have worked with LinkedIn and used LinkedIn from almost its very beginning. Today, it has a billion people on its platform. And there's just so much opportunity built into all of that data. And I'm really excited about a new tool that they've built. It's called LinkedIn Sales Navigator. It's for people to make the sales they want in a business-to-business -business setting. So they take all of this highly intelligent sales platform to drive higher revenue, increase your sales performance, but particularly in helping you target the right buyers to surface those key signals. For example, someone has a job change or which accounts you should prioritize so that you can find the buyers that are most likely to convert. It gives you the most up-to-date first-party data available to unlock conversations with the people that really matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash advisor. That's linkedin.com slash advisor for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash advisor and get started. It sounds like if you could get your writing career to the next level, if you could have the books be more successful than they currently are, and they're already, you're doing great with it, but you want to go to the next level, that that would enable the kind of the real dream that you want to be pursuing. Does that sound right? Yes. Maybe we should spend our time focused on that for a moment. Um, because something that keeps getting my attention in this conversation is this idea of I've got a dozen books. And I'm not saying you don't. But the thing I want to say to you is what if you could only have one, mm. but that you are going to do it so right that it's going to reach 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times, 10,000 times more than the, all the previous books. Mm. And to challenge you to actually crack the code on like, what is it that's going to help you to get to that next level? Mm. There's a lot of people within the writing industry that I know a little about, but also in every industry that keep putting poles in the tent of their career of, of equal height. Mm. There's already 10 poles in there and they want the tent to go higher, but they just keep on putting more poles of the same height in it. Instead of what's the one pole that's longer that will actually take me to the next level. But I wonder if there's a way we could rethink, reconfigure how you're doing the books so that you can have one that you say that just, just took off, that really worked, and it's given me a, a whole new platform. Your thoughts on any of this? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I hear you. That's that's a really interesting way to think about it. You sounded burdened as I said that to you. Mm, no, I I actually was feeling relieved. Oh, I like that. I think that yeah, I I mean I that makes so much sense and it, it sort of sparks all kinds of little connected ideas. Okay, so then 
I have unanswerable questions because then it's how do you crack the code on what that book is? And nobody knows the answer to that. But I think I can't think about that question with the kind of with the tiger lurking. I can't like I won't get clear on the answer to that question if I'm feeling like I'm trying to figure out the answer to the question because it will serve a purpose that is very narrow. You're saying you don't have space because of the financial pressure. You don't have the emotional and mental space to even be able to consider the answer to that question. So I feel like in some ways to connect with the part of me that has figured out what is the right book to focus on, I need to extract the anxiety around the financial pressure. Does that make sense? Like, I, It's like it, it'll pollute my thinking and my intuition. Help me understand that. <laughs> okay. You're saying that just worrying about the financial concern is going to make you write the wrong book. You're not going to be as pure in your writing. Well, maybe it's not as black and white, but kind of. Like, I think it would make me feel, I think I would keep chasing my tail in a circle if I just try to think about what is the book that I could write that would, you know, that would do really, really well and that would even whether it's the book does well or brings in audiences that can pay more than what educators can pay for a keynote kind of thing. Like if I just try to think about that, I don't think, I don't trust that I'll land on the right idea. You're saying that that question feels like it would take you out of the sweet spot that you've been in as you've been creating in the past. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a couple of thoughts about that for you. One is, what do you think is the way to increase your impact, therefore increasing your ability to make writing your primary work and also increase the value, the perceived value of your keynotes and coaching to other people? So what do you do when you see three possible paths? What are the three possible paths? Well, let's say like you see three outlines for three or four different books right now. Go. What are they? (sighs) Uh, That's like talking about a pregnancy in its first week. Okay, so... I wrote a book about how to build resilience in educators and it's done, it's, it's got, you know, I know a lot of people are writing about resilience, but I also own that I have some unique ideas and unique ways of approaching it. And that book has done really well. And I have been asked, people have, have shared that book with folks outside of education. And those people have said, you know, you should write something for, for parents, or you should write something for CEOs, or you should write... And so there's interest in a book on cultivating resilient teams, on how do you build a resilient team? How do we, for lack of a better word right now, sort of a problematic word, but how do we unify and come together and connect around our mission? And I know that there's books on this already out there. And I also, again, recognize I have some unique approaches. 
Um, and so that that's a that's a project I've been thinking about. And then I have ideas for books that are for a much narrower specific audience. And so, for example, I do a lot of work around racial justice. And so I work with a lot of people of color. I identify as a person of color. Um, I do a lot of coaching and resilience building in people of color. And so that's another area that people have asked me, how do I, as a person of color, what is different for me in terms of building my resilience? How do I, how do I get rid of the the internalized racism that I've ingested in my lifetime? Um, so then, there's a very specific audience there, and then I've been working on something that is much more personal and creative, and mixes history and memoir and social science research, and that's a project that. I think is has real potential. But that one I didn't understand what that was. No, cuz I don't want to talk about it yet. <laughs> Which you don't need to feel forced or pressured to talk about it, but of the 3, if you had to choose one right now, you would choose which one? Okay, the last one that I was really vague about. The last one that I don't want to tell you. Mhm. That's going to make this conversation trickier, <laughs> but I, I do understand something of, of how precious ideas are in their early stage and how one wants to protect them and, uh, and, and not just announce these things. And, and I do understand that hesitancy. Why is it that that is the idea you want to run with? Because it's something that I haven't read anywhere it's it's unique yes i haven't read anything like it i love books that combine ideas and combine genres and and that's what it does often in life when we're not quite getting the results we want we think the answer is to push harder on the current strategy rather than find a new strategy, find a better strategy. I mean, in this case, it might not be an easier strategy exactly because you've just described the one you're on is, is so much easier because it's just, it sort of came to you, it found you, and you've just been able to, to, to go with it. But I wonder whether the way to the 10x level isn't just 10 more of what you're doing it's one of something else. Hmm. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. But then how do you figure out what that something else is? Well, I mean, I could be wrong, but it feels like you, it feels to me like you may already know. But because it's unfamiliar, it's taking courage to take that journey, to take that step. And mm -hmm. courage, as we all either know or ought to know, is not a nice feeling. <laughs> we, we want to be in need of courage and to feel courage as rarely as possible. Because it really just takes all of that vulnerability. Yeah. It takes all of what we have to step one inch into that vulnerability.
it's not really that the way itself is harder. It's not the work itself that's harder. It's the fear. I'm faking this. I am such a fake. I'm such a phony. I'm going to be found out if I take this path. Yeah. What are you even doing thinking about this? You're not credible in this. You're going to stick with your stick with your knitting. Mm-hmm. You've got to stay within your core competency of the past. And I'm not even mm-hmm. here telling you what to do. I'm really trying to hear you. And I think what I hear is there is, it's not really the easy versus the hard path. It's the safe path versus the right path. Yes. You're absolutely right. Courage is not a nice feeling. <laughs> um, that feels liberating somehow because we're, you know, courage is so such a lauded trait. Um, it is. Isn't it? It's always good in, in the hero and the heroine. It's always good that they <laughs> have it. But when you have it, it's full of yeah. trembling. Yeah. Yeah, there's no way to feel courageous without feeling terror at the same time. No, there's no point whatsoever for courage unless we're trembling. So I'm just having a big, like, fear attack. That's what I'm coming at. It's like, right, I know what I want to write. I know what I want to do and not do, but I'm just really scared that I'll make the wrong decision and... The anxiety is always, am I making the right decision? And am I making a decision that, you know, will this bring stability for my family? Will this decision have a positive impact on society? Will I regret it when I'm older? What are your answers to those questions, given where we are in this conversation? Well, I've made a lot of good decisions in my life, and I think I can take more risk than I've taken. I mean, I can take a measured risk, and and I really like the analogy of the tent poles, and 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 what that evokes for me, which is rather than writing five more books that might do sort of as well as the ones I've written. Maybe I can write one that is deeply meaningful and satisfying and that has a greater, deeper impact and creates different opportunities for me. It's interesting that out of all the things we're talking about, that's the thing that you're coming back to. That tells me something's going on inside of you. That's not just my opinion for you or something. That's the part you're being attracted to. What I think is happening in you is that there's something nudging you towards a different strategy. Mm. Mm. And that this is good news because it's your own mind and heart telling you and teaching you how to go from where you are to where you want to be. 
you you can't go from here to there mm. by doing what you've done in the past. What got you here won't get you there. And that doesn't mean you have to go cold turkey. Uh, I've generally overstated that in my own life, that it's entirely all or nothing. Mm. Patrick McGuinness was um, the author of FOMO and the person who came up with the term FOMO, and I also had him on the podcast. He teaches the principle of the 10% entrepreneur. And that is if you're going to try and take a risk in a new area, maybe take 10% of your time and devote it entirely to that new thing so that you're not immediately feeling the panic of, well, I quit my job and now I've got to make this happen. And there is a more sensible journey to the new, but do spend the 10%. (laughs) so that you can mm-hmm. start seeing these pieces come together, mm-hmm. this new, your thoughts. That feels really doable. That feels really clear and actionable. And I also just, I really appreciate, you said to achieve what I want, I need a different strategy. That feels really freeing. Because it doesn't feel like I'm chasing my tail in a circle. This episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. (coughs) Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more, with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments, and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify, because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg. So let me ask you this. What is the very first physical action that you can take to pursue this new direction? I think I need to look at my calendar and block out the time I need to write and ask one of my teammates to sort of be my accountability partner or to help me hold that time. Like no matter what comes up, I can't schedule anything on that day. 
It sounds like it's something like one day a week. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's even half a day if we're thinking 10%. Mm-hmm. So the very first step is opening your calendar? Yes. So that's doable. You need to open your calendar and you need to just put something new on there. <laughs> what day are you going to do it? I'll probably have to work with the calendar. My calendar's about six months out, has all kinds of things on it. So I'll probably, it may not be the same day each week. I think what's key for me is going to be asking my teammate to to help me hold that time. So maybe the first step is calling or texting your teammate to say, I need to have a conversation with you. I need to write this book and I'm going to block out time on my calendar. And no matter what comes up, I mean, maybe if President Obama wants to talk, I'll break that. But uh, nothing, nothing can, nothing can take, go in that time. You know, because that's the thing. Sometimes things come up and say like, oh, this is a great opportunity or this group has been trying to get you to work with them for three years and you have that one afternoon. Could you do it then? And I just need to, I, I need to make it clear to everybody that I'm not, I can't, I'm not available. And can you just put into words why this matters so much so that when you text, you don't just say the what, you can explain the why? I think I have to work on that because I, I, I think it's, I, th- I have to figure out those words because I want to say, because I have to write this book. I just. Why? Why do you have to? Because it sounds so dramatic to say, but I feel like if I don't, I just like, I'm going to die. Like it's a story that I have to tell and it's already finding ways to come out. I think it's just, I'm anticipating that people will say, well, why are you writing that? Why don't you write more of what we know you're going to get a good response to? And so why, why take such a detour? This is, you could write another book about this or that and it would, we, it would do well. We know that, but I don't want to. So your why is I'm going to die if I don't write this. Yeah. (laughs) This has to come out of me. Yeah. Or I'm going to get sick. And I'm not going to work anymore. I'm not going to function anymore. This must be done. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes about writing is that uh, writers write because they can't not write. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I'm suddenly sensing in between the lines here is that tell me if I'm wrong. I think you got caught in a parallel path (laughs) that you said, I want to write. I am writing, but I've got to run this business and this business now needs me to keep writing these kinds of books. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. now I am semi-slave to the business strategy. Mm-hmm. But I can now, in light of 
this conversation assert that I'm an author who happens to be an entrepreneur, not an entrepreneur who happens to be an author. Mm-hmm. So my strategy needs to be about writing the right thing. And then let's build a business around that. Build a career around that. Build whatever I need to do around that, but not the other way around. Yeah, I love that that I'm caught in a parallel path. And I have sort of created this business that now I feed rather than it feeding me in a sense. It feels like this this little monster that I have to keep going, um, which is okay. I can figure out a way to make it make it work better. Let me just make the observation. I think writing is primary in so many fields. And it's actually taken me a while to understand that, strangely enough, even though really what I do is teach and write. You know, that's all I've done for many years. I still am amazed at how many things grow out of the writing part of my work. And you think about many other fields too, whatever it looks like on the surface, when you actually get down to where the value creation is happening, Mm. it's some form of writing. The value creation isn't just in the conversations and the brainstorming. It's not just in the, it's the writing. It's where you sit down, focused, concentrated Mm. writing is I think the beginning of most of the value flow that takes place, even in industries that it's not obvious at first. So I think that that's the key distinction going forward is that the writing is the priority. Hmm. It's got to be intent driven. What do I need to bring forth into the world? What is within me that needs to get out of me? And let's see where that journey takes you. This is really helpful. So much I want to process and digest, but mostly I feel a lot of relief and clarity and and affirmation in terms of, I, I, you know, I may be experiencing a lot of fear and everything else that's going on, but I also am really clear what I need to do and I need to figure out the next steps to to do it. Elena, it's been my real pleasure to talk with you, to to listen to your current grapplings, wrestles, to discern between the good and the great, the good and the right. And it's an honor to be able to sense this early but vitally important creation that's happening. You said it's like like birthing, and I think it is. It's an act of creation to bring something forth. I think it always does take courage because it starts so small and it starts so different. And we've got to try and nurture it and bring it to life. It's already a little bit of life at the beginning, but we have to try and protect it and develop it and build it. And and in that, great things can happen. And I think my sense is that it's not at the first phase within you, that it's maybe at the third or fourth or fifth phase. It's just still 
still feels small and young, but actually it's been growing for a long time and it's just bursting to come forward. But it's not in alignment with the current strategy around you, so it's it's harder to imagine how it would how to even bring it about. And I hope today's conversation has been helpful. Uh, and I really thank you for your time and your vulnerability in sharing your story with us. Thank you, Elena. Oh, thank you so much, Greg. This was really helpful. Ladies and gentlemen, essentialists, one and all, we've come to that moment again, the end of the show. Thank you really sincerely for listening. It's been amazing to see what's happened already with this show. The show has become, in fact, the top 3% of podcasts globally within just the first five months of its launch. And that's because of you. You have made this special. And I want to end, as I always do, reminding you that if you don't do anything else, just ask what's essential and eliminate as much as possible everything else. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.